Welcome to this week's Parsha Share. Thank you so much to Barbara Bernstein for sponsoring today's Share in memory of her brother Joel Bernstein. Yosef Yitzchok ben Yechiel, Zichroin Levrochos Yatzeit, was on the 3rd of Teves. May his Neshama have an Aliyah, and may we be Zeicher to see Tchias Hamesim. Some years ago, a friend of mine, a Satmachosid, invited me for Shabbos to Williamsburg. He told me that I had a fairly substantial following in Williamsburg, people who read my articles and who listened to or watched my lectures and shiurim on a regular basis. I must say, I was rather surprised. Williamsburg is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, and a large section of Williamsburg is inhabited by Satmar Hasidim, the Hasidic group best known for its staunch opposition to Zionism and the State of Israel. According to official counts, there are approximately 57,000 Satmar and other affiliated Hasidim in Williamsburg. That is a significant number. And considering that I am a very public supporter and defender of Israel, the idea of spending a Shabbos in Williamsburg where supporting Israel is not so popular seemed, how do I put it, risky. My friend assured me that I was completely safe and that it's not like that, it's not like that. People tend to keep to themselves and my visit would be kept well below the radar. Don't worry, don't worry, he kept on telling me. You're overthinking this. I shook my head. It was okay for him, I thought. He blended in, as did my other Satmar acolytes. I am very obviously not a Satmar Chosid. I don't look the part, and if anyone who objected to my publicly broadcasted views heard that I was around, it would be very easy to find me. But what is life worth if you don't take a risk once in a while? So I did it. I went to Williamsburg for Shabbos, and it was amazing. I spoke and led the davening and sang Shabbos songs and spoke again and again and again to multiple audiences in English and in Yiddish, although obviously not in Ivrit. And as Shabbos progressed, and I schmoozed with more and more people and got more and more comfortable, I realized that while the official Satmar position may be anti-Israel, the Satmar guys on the street, as it were, are not all doctrinaire anti-Israel, and many of them are very curious to find out more about Israel, about its history, and about how strictly Orthodox Jews can be supportive of Israel without compromising their beliefs and their cultural existence. It was a truly fascinating Shabbat. Many of the relationships I struck up that weekend have persisted, and I am in regular touch with my friends from Williamsburg. Anyway, by the time I got to Mincha on Shabbos, I was feeling a lot more confident and so I decided to push the envelope out much further than I had ever intended. I was scheduled to speak between Mincha and Mariv over a rudimentary Sudash Lishit that the hosting committee had put together. My slot was about 20 minutes long, but they said I could go over that time slot if I wanted. We washed our hands, I sat down, made hamotzi on the chalas, smiled at everyone. There must have been about 100 people there altogether, all looking at me expectantly, strimals, beards, payas, beckishers, all of them swaying gently. The room was dead silent. It was Parshas Shemois, and I opened my Chumish to Shemois chapter 3, 
The chapter begins, And Moses was a shepherd. It's the chapter in which Moses first experiences prophecy. He's a prophet. God speaks to him from inside a burning bush on the site of Mount Sinai, which would later be where God gave the Torah to the Jewish nation. God explains that the Jewish nation, that he needs a redeemer for the Jewish nation, they're enslaved in Egypt, and he, God, asks Moses to be his representative. You shall be my messenger, he says to Moses. You shall free my people, the Israelites, from Egypt and bring them to the promised land. But Moses is having none of it, characteristically humble. He says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? You've picked the wrong guy. I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. I'm the last person you should choose. God is very patient with him. Who are you? I'll tell you who you are. You are my representative, so don't worry about your own merits. It's not about you, it's about God, and I, God, will be together with you at all times. And when it's all done, and the nation is free, you'll come back here to Mount Sinai with the nation, and all of you will pray to me. But Moses is still reluctant. The Bnei Israel, the nation, won't accept me as their leader, he says. They will ask, who sent you? And they will challenge me. And another thing, Pharaoh won't understand me. I, I have a speech impediment. I'm a useless communicator. This whole thing is a terrible idea, God. Don't pick me, choose someone else. Unusually, the conversation between God and Moses is not limited to one chapter. It spills over into the next chapter, chapter 4. That's because this interaction between God and Moses took a long time. The Midrashic sages tell us that the dialogue actually lasted for three full days. And for each challenge Moses put up to God, God patiently responded, offering him logical answers to the issues that Moses raised and even enabling him to perform miracles so that he could prove himself to his detractors. God's tolerance for Moses' disinclination to do the job he was being asked to do is seemingly limitless, at least until the very last exchange, when God finally seems to lose his temper. Having run out of excuses, Moses says to God, Do you know what? Be Adonai, shlach na biyad tishlach. Please, God, just make someone else your messenger. And do you know who the messenger should be? I've got a good idea. It should be the person who has been your messenger for all the years that I have been in exile in Midian. Who is that someone else? Who is that person? It is none other than Aaron, Moses' brother. Moses said to God, you know what? Moses said to God, you, you know that I have an older brother. His name is Aaron. So why are you coming to me? Let him be the one to do it. He's been doing it for ages. I've been out of circulation for decades. I don't want him to be jealous. I don't want him to be upset. And if I take his place and I'm God's messenger, 
Aaron is going to be jealous. Aaron is going to be upset. Suddenly, out of nowhere, after three days of incredible forbearance and unflappability, God gets really angry. God is so furious with Moses and he says to him, Are you crazy? You think Aaron will be jealous? You think he's going to be upset? On the contrary, he's going to be delighted. In fact, he's already delighted. He is already setting out to meet you and he will be so happy to see you. I closed my chumish and I looked around at the Satmar Hasidim in Williamsburg. I have a question for you, I said. Why was Hashem so angry now? Why didn't he get angry before? What was different about this last suggestion compared to all the other questions and objections that Moses had come up with before? He'd been driving God crazy for three days already. God is so patient. Why did he react so indignantly only for this question? The Chassidim all nodded. They loved the question. I paused for a moment. Let's park that question for a minute, I said, and instead let's try and deal with a far more fundamental question about the narrative portions of the Torah, the stories in Bereshis. What do we need them for? Clearly, there has to be a purpose in all the stories. The Torah is not a history book, in which case these stories must have a purpose beyond the information they contain individually. And I quoted Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Most of them had never heard of him. His erudition and brilliance had not yet penetrated into Williamsburg, New York. I told them that Rabbi Sachs says that this question of the purpose of the stories in Bereshis is one of the most fundamental questions about the Torah. And it is also one of the hardest questions to answer. What? from the time we hear about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Yishmael and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau and Jacob's family and the brothers and Joseph right through to the death of Joseph in Parshas Vayechi what is the basic religious principle or moral principle or faith principle that is being taught? What does the entire set of stories actually tell us. Rabbi Sachs, following in the tradition of classical biblical commentary, is on the lookout for an overarching theme, an all-encompassing motif that unites all the narratives of Bereshis under one roof and demonstrates that Bereshis is not simply a collection of random stories. Superficially, that's what Bereshis seems to be. But deep down, the book of Bereshis is an exploration, an examination of the most profound source of conflict in human history. Sigmund Freud believed that the ultimate symbol of conflict was Laius and Oedipus, namely the tension that exists between fathers and sons. But Bereshis is an indicator that the truth lies elsewhere. If you read Bereshit, you realize that the root of human conflict 
is actually sibling rivalry. And if you want to truly understand what a book is about, look carefully at how it ends. The last page of any book is the key to the whole book. Although, don't read the last page first. That will ruin it. It will ruin everything. You've got to read the whole book first and then you'll understand the last page properly. And as you'll see, as you'll soon see, it is only at the end of Voracious, in Parshas Vayechi, that we can really understand the sibling rivalry theme that runs through the whole book and its purpose. Let's start at the beginning of Voracious. It begins with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain is jealous of Abel. Abel's sacrifice is more desired by God and Cain is enraged. How dare his brother be favoured by God? What a chutzpah! So how does Cain resolve the problem? It's a worst case scenario. He resolves the problem by engaging in fratricide. He kills his brother so that his brother will never again be favoured and Cain is forever branded a sibling murderer. What happens then? We have the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is a pure child, the son of Abraham and Sarah, but he has a brother, Ishmael. Ishmael is not so pure. He is leading Isaac astray. Banish him, says Sarah. Get him away. There is no attempt at reconciliation. Yishmael is bad, he must be banished, and that's it. Then we have the next pair of siblings, Jacob and Esau. They are already fighting in the womb. They couldn't be more different, but they seem to find a modus vivendi. They keep away from each other to avoid conflict. Esau is an outdoors guy while Jacob stays indoors. He's a bookish sort. A peace of sorts prevails. But then Jacob tricks Esau out of Isaac's blessings and all bets are off. He's out to kill his brother, vigilante justice. So Yaakov, Jacob, has to run away. But the story doesn't end there. Things are different this time. Jacob is determined to come back and at least attempt a reconciliation with his brother. He takes precautions, of course, but he sends Esau gifts and kind, brotherly messages. I want to be your friend, he tells him. They eventually meet up and they hug and they kiss. In a way, it's a real breakthrough. But it only works because Esau heads off to live elsewhere and Jacob and Esau once again live totally separate lives. They hop back to where they were before the fight started. Peace prevails because they have nothing to do with each other. And now we have the story of Joseph and his brothers, one of the most painful narratives in the Torah. Joseph is a favoured son. Jacob loves him and Joseph is his confidant. The other brothers feel usurped, undermined. They gang up against Joseph and almost kill him. No lessons have been learnt. We seem to be back at square one, Cain killing Abel. But then, 
at the last minute, there's a reprieve. How can we have our brother's blood on our hands, says Judah? How does that make any sense? You're almost wishing him to say, are we crazy? Let's reconcile with him and let's take him back to dad. But as Rabbi Sachs jokes, citing the verse in Tehillim 133, How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together, says Rabbi Sachs. The Posuk should have added, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together and how rare. Joseph's brothers opt for a separation. Jacob and Esau style selling their brother into slavery in Egypt to ensure a separation between them and him forever. But this is a story with lots of twists and turns. Joseph's fortunes rise and fall like the sun until he's eventually appointed viceroy of Egypt to take care of the country as it heads towards a terrible famine that is slated to follow an economic boom. And what do you know? Suddenly, his brothers are standing in front of him sent to Egypt by Jacob to get food during the famine. The storyline continues at a hair-raising pace until the moment of the great reveal. We all love the great reveal. Joseph tells his brothers, I am Joseph, and do you know what, he says to his brothers, do you know why all of this happened? It happened so that the family could survive the famine. That's why I needed to come to Egypt before you. And it's all good. Don't be upset. Don't be worried. Everything's going to be okay. And that seems to be it. The sibling rivalry theme seems to have come to its natural conclusion. Brothers can be at odds with each other and they don't have to resort to fratricide. They don't have to live far away from each other. They can make up with each other and live alongside each other and they, they can get on with each other. They can get on with each other because that's really what needs to happen. Joseph, Joseph is reconciling with his brother. He can live alongside them and they can get on. But what happens then? What is the next stage? It seems that the brothers were not able to totally believe that Joseph had forgiven them. They understand that there's more at play here. They understand that Joseph may still hate them. They understand that Joseph may still be very angry and that at some stage he may take revenge. The final scene in Bereshis is, as Rabbi Sachs puts it, intensely significant. Apparently, now that Jacob had died, Joseph's brothers were terrified. They were terrified that now finally, with Jacob gone, Joseph would take revenge against them for having sold him into slavery. They remembered what he had told them 17 years earlier, that he forgave them, and that everything that happened had been so that he could get to Egypt first and so that the family wouldn't starve. But as it turns out, they had only half believed him. Their fear was based on a simple fact. Killing your brothers wasn't something you did when your parents were still alive. This is clear from the story of Esau. The Torah records him as saying, listen, 
Yikrivu yemei evel avi, vaharga es Yaakov achi. The days of mourning for my father will be here soon, and then I will be able to kill my brother Jacob. And the situation after Jacob's passing echoed that earlier moment. Jacob was dead, so Joseph now had carte blanche to kill his brothers if he wanted to. At least, that's what Joseph's brothers thought. And so they arranged for a family meeting with Joseph, just him and them, and they conveyed a conversation they said, might not have been true, but they, they said that they'd had with their father before he died. Your father left these instructions before he died, they told Joseph. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Please forgive us, they said to Joseph, because that's what Daddy wanted. Joseph, who is surely the most forgiving character of the whole Bible, looked at his brothers as if they'd gone completely nuts. We've been there. We've done that, he thought to himself. And that's exactly what he told them. Don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? You intended to harm me, maybe. But God intended it all for the good in order to accomplish what is being done now, the saving of many lives. And they hugged and they kissed and they wept. And that is the last scene in Sefer Bereshis. It closes out the theme of sibling rivalry. Sibling rivalry is a problem that has been dealt with. It's been put to bed once and for all. Rabbi Sachs puts it beautifully. We've been through it all. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Yishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. Are brothers able to live peacefully with one another? It is a question that intimately relates to the biblical drama of redemption. After all, if brothers can't live together in peace, how can a nation live in peace with itself? And if nations can't hold it together, how will humanity ever survive? Only now, with the reconciliation of Joseph and his brothers, can the story move on to the birth of Israel as a nation, passing from slavery to freedom, from oppression to redemption. Bereshis was all about solving this problem, and now that it is solved, we can begin Shmois. It's amazing, right? It's so neat. But then, there's a problem. Moses wasn't born in a vacuum. Guess what? He had a brother. His brother was Aaron, and they had a beautiful relationship. There's no sibling rivalry. They loved and respected each other. All the problems of Beratius were seemingly vanquished. But were they? Were they really vanquished? Let me remind you what Moses said to God. Be Adonai, shlach na beyad tishlach. Please, God, just make someone else your messenger to redeem Bnei Yisrael. And I've got a good idea who it should be. It should be Aaron, you know. I have an older brother. His name is Aaron. So why are you asking me to do it? 
Let him be the one to do it. He's been your man in Egypt for ages. I've been out of circulation for decades. I don't want him to be jealous. I don't want him to be upset. And if I take his place, you know what's going to happen? If I'm God's messenger, Aaron is going to be jealous. Aaron is going to be upset. Suddenly, and this is the only time it happened throughout the dialogue, throughout the three days, God was infuriated. Do you know why he was so angry? And why he was angry only now? It's simple. Have you learnt nothing from Beratius? God was asking Moses. Don't you remember what Joseph said? Don't you remember that sibling rivalry is not on the menu anymore? Don't you know that you're all in this together, that you are brothers who love each other? And not only is Aaron getting ready for you to do the job, he is so happy that you are going to be the one to do it. So don't ever pull that one on me again, God was saying. Sibling rivalry is so retro. It's so yesterday's news. We're so done with that. And that's it. Discussion over. So what do you think of that? It's such a beautiful interpretation. I love it. Anyway, my friends in Williamsburg, the Satmah Hasidim, they also loved it that Shabbos afternoon. And they were all nodding enthusiastically. And they thought I was done. But I wasn't done. Hey, excuse me, I said. I haven't finished yet. I'm not done. The room in Williamsburg went quiet again. I have a question for you. It's a simple question, but I'm sure you've never thought about it before. If it had been up to you to choose the person who was going to represent God in the negotiations with Pharaoh and to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt, to get the Torah, to go to the Promised Land, who would you have chosen? Would you have chosen Moses? Or would you have chosen Aaron? Think objectively. Who was the one who had been the leader of the Jewish people throughout the period of slavery over the previous few decades? Aaron. Who was a great speaker, a great communicator? Aaron. Who was the older brother, the senior man? Aaron. And it was likely, and was it likely, that Moses, who had previously been a privileged member of Pharaoh's household, would it be likely that he would be taken seriously by the Israelites? No, it wasn't. Would it be likely that Moses, a fugitive with a charge of felony murder hanging over him, would be taken seriously by Pharaoh or anyone in Egypt? No, it wasn't. Objectively speaking, Moses was absolutely right when he objected to his nomination as God's representative. Aaron was by far the better choice. He was truly the best candidate for the job of getting Pharaoh's attention and ensuring the liberation of the Jewish nation. In which case, why did God choose Moses? Why didn't he choose Aaron, the better man for the job? It's a good question, right? Have you ever thought of it before? It's a very simple question, but I think the answer is equally simple. God wanted to show that he could get the job done by whatever means he decided on. Yes, it's true, Aaron was a holy man. He was the older brother. 
he was a great communicator and he was everything else as well. And yes, Moses was a fugitive who had been out of touch for so many years uh, and he was a controversial figure and he wasn't a very good talker. But none of that mattered to God because if God wanted Moses to be the one to do the job, then he becomes the best person that there is to do the job. It's as simple as that. And in a post-Boratius world of sibling love, of sibling affection, Aaron would understand that it's not up to him to decide whether he is the more suited brother to liberate the Jews from slavery and bring them to the promised land. It's not up to him at all. And if God chooses his less suitable brother, at least by his own assessment, whether that's objective or not, it's irrelevant. Aaron will see, see him and he will be so happy in his heart. Aaron will embrace God's will unquestioningly because we love our brothers and we especially love them when they are agents of God's divine will. Okay, back to Williamsburg. So now I took a deep breath, a very deep breath, Okay, I said to the Hasidim, now I want to talk to you about the state of Israel. Everyone leaned forward, every single one of them, and their eyes widened. You could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. I was in the lion's den of anti-Zionism, and I was about to address the elephant in the room. I plowed on my heart racing. Why do orthodox anti-Zionists oppose the Zionist project? You know why better than I do. There are a number of objections, but the principal objection seems to be that a Jewish state cannot possibly be God's will unless it emanates totally and completely from the Frum world. How is it possible that the Messianic era the messianic redemption will be initiated by those who are not integrated into the system. God could not possibly want outsiders to be the ones who determine the future of Jewish life. The Zionist project, the state of Israel, every aspect of Zionism in Israel is treif because those who came up with the idea and made it happen are treif. And it doesn't matter how long it goes on for, it cannot possibly be God's will and therefore those who support Israel are proactively preventing the real messianic era from happening. I looked at them. Is that correct? Have I summarized it correctly? I asked them. They all nodded. So I continued. Do you know who had that exact same thought thousands of years ago? Do you know who thought that the package had to be perfect, otherwise it would never work. Moses. Yes, Moses told God, I'm not suited to be the redeemer. I'm not suited to be the liberator. Let my brother do it. He's much more suited than me. He looks like a Satmachosid. And he will never accept me because I'm so unsuited. I don't look like a Satmachosid. And God became angry. How dare you? He said to Moses. 
How dare you suggest that your brother will be jealous or that he'll judge you? You're his brother. And he will recognize that you being the redeemer and the liberator is God's will. And he will welcome you. And he will be full of joy. My dear friends, I said to the Hasidim, it is God's will that the Jewish people return to the land of Israel. It is God's will that Israel became an independent Jewish country for the first time in 2,000 years. And it was God's will that this all happened at the instigation of secular Zionists. Don't ask me why. That's a question you can ask God. But in the meantime, the facts speak for themselves. And you are looking a gift horse in the mouth. You are saying that Herzl was irreligious, so Zionism must be evil. You are saying that Ben-Gurion was anti-religious and therefore Israel can't be God's will. You're so mistaken. You've got it all wrong. Do you know what you need to start doing? Whenever you hear about the state of Israel, you need to be full of joy in your heart. God is talking to you through Israel and you need to hear that prophecy and welcome it with the ultimate in gladness and joy. And just to be clear, there's nothing that makes God more angry than siblings looking for faults in each other and being jealous of each other. It took the whole of Sefer Beratius to resolve the issue of sibling rivalry, to get Yosef and his brothers weeping. And finally, all the past pain was gone. It was done. The greatest threat to the family and the nation was vanquished. And that is why God was so angry with Moses at the burning bush. Moses was allowing the ugly head of sibling rivalry to raise itself and God was not having it. And God won't have it now either. It is time to welcome and embrace the state of Israel, all of us, from the most secular Jew to the biggest Satmachosid, to link arms with all our brothers and sisters so that we can experience the redemption that is heralded by Israel's existence. Am Yisrael Chai. And I sat down. There was silence, a long silence. I guess we need to sing Shahamalos and bench now, I said, and I began, began singing Shahamalos to the tune of the Hatikva. Slowly, a few of the Hasidim joined in together with me, and now there were others who were talking to each other animatedly. Some of the others smiled at me and gave me a thumbs up. Bottom line, I made it out of there alive, and I'm here to tell the tale. The message I shared that day in Williamsburg and that I share with you today is simple. God wants us all to get on. Nothing makes him happier than peace in the family and that is what we need to strive for. I'm so grateful to Rabbi Sachs for having revealed this idea and I'm so delighted to have been able to share it with you in this year. May it be God's will that our sibling affection hastens the arrival of Mashiach and that we see the rebuilding of our temple in Jerusalem speedily and in our days. Amen, but amen. Thank you so much. Thank you.